John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 145.1T0515, certificate number 38501, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons. So what is the DC? Uh, the DC is 10 plus my power stat, so 13. Okay, well, that will pass. <laughs> the ooze squishes away from it. Okay, so the ooze will be green and... And, and the uh, the flying creature flies into it. Okay, so six to the flying creature, uh, and I'm, I'll give you the half number, two to the ooze. Okay. This just turns into a puddle of goo. <laughs> nice. What's your... <laughs> this is definitely the first show that's also a Dear Abby um, <laughs> correspondent. Actually, it's my Twitch name. <laughs> uh, what's your first-hand experience with demons, Ken? Uh, Do demons play a role in the Mormon cosmology? Very, very little, actually. Mm -hmm. Like, there's not a lot of the evangelical style, well, you know what, if you do X, if you listen to rock and roll, the demons will will come into your room through the... They get inside you, right? The jungle rhythms or the heavy metal lyrics (laughs) or the the backwards... the jungle rhythms. The backwards uh, secret messages. Um, And there's also very little kinds of... um, there's very little lore about demonic possession and uh, exorcism and that kind of thing. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, teenage boys don't love to whisper about that kind of thing in any suburb, right. secular or not, but it's not a huge part of my upbringing. Like, well, make sure the demons don't get you as I'm strapping up my backpack for school. <laughs> or as you're laying your head down on your pillow. <laughs> don't let the bed bugs bite. Uh, so you don't have any firsthand, you, you ever encounter a demon or uh, ever feel like think so. there's but, a demon on your shoulder? Again, like, I feel like if you hang out with um, young people in the Latter-day Saint community, just like evangelicals or maybe even Catholics, there might be some, you know what I heard my cousin saw once. I, b- like, I believe the Catholics are also... <laughs> Catholic boys are also doing this, yes. Probably, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, that's why they get chosen for the exorcist. You don't you don't want a Lutheran guy up in there. Well, that's what's causing them to masturbate so furiously. <laughs> like you'll you know, it'll be like, man, my cousin said, you know, he went into this house and there was like a really bad feeling and mm-hmm. you know, and there was like a just a really feeling of darkness in the corner and he had to say a prayer or whatever. But like um like in church, like actual theology, you don't hear You're that. not going to hear that, and I don't. I've never had that kind of uh, 
Like I've walked into houses that had a bad feeling, but it was because there was like a rat in the wall or- um, Right, or, or it was just a bummer house. Yeah, like the feng shui was bad <laughs> or, you know, some lousy out-of-work dad wasn't cleaning up or- No, wait, we've never, have we ever talked about this? Do you believe in ghosts? I think we have talked about this yeah. literally every show. Yeah, I guess so. Every and Why does every omnibus begin with you asking me if I believe in ghosts? In ghosts stop, can... stop bullying me. No, it's because I'm a ghost this whole time. Oh my gosh. This whole time you thought that- you could see uh, dead people, and it was me. Ghost dad. Uh, yeah, pro- I don't know. No, yeah, sort yeah of, probably. Maybe? I don't think so, actually. They they appear to not have, you know, I, I w- I would, I'm hopeful for an afterlife, but it doesn't seem like they hang out much. Do you get spooked? Well, that's a better question. Do you get spooked? I get spooked by scary movies. If I have to, like, walk back up, back upstairs to, to bed in the dark. You're, you're spooked if you were watching a scary movie? Yeah, a little bit. What if you were uh, walking through uh, the Vermont hinterlands in the middle of the night and had to cross a graveyard? <laughs> uh, and it was foggy. I actually, I think I would enjoy that. I'd yeah. be like, boy, when does this kind of thing happen? It's like, pretty exciting. I'm going to get my, uh, this, this is going to be good for TikTok. But not spooked. Yeah, a little spooked. Depending I, on how many scary movies. I find graveyards very peaceful. Yeah. Like, do you, um, you, this, this sounds like a very specific story and possibly one I've heard before. I'm not sure. Oh, there was one time I was hitchhiking in Vermont and didn't you stay with somebody creepy? I've heard this story. No, that's in Europe. No, that was in Vermont too. Oh. Different time. Vermont's a very spooky state. Why is Vermont the Transylvania of New England? freaking spooky there. But, but very vaccinated. Good it's job. Super vaccinated. Good job, Vermont. It's super liberal, like all ghostly places. Do you think, do you think the COVID vaccine maybe, um, lets people see ghosts? Or, uh, this all or, happened or a long time the before dead. then. No, I was hitchhiking and some, and the guy I was riding with, for whatever reason, came to a crossroads and he was like, you got to get out here. And I got out and it was across the street from an insane asylum, which inexplicably was still open in Vermont after they'd been closed everywhere else. And what, I think the sign literally said insane asylum. Wouldn't a closed, a closed uh, dilapidated one be worse? I'd be happy to see a, a cheery, a cheery, well-lit sanitary. Well, sanitarium. but it was like up a driveway, up on top of a hill. And so I was like, oh, I don't want to. Is there lightning flashing behind it? Sort of. And so I stood out in front of it hitchhiking and a few cars <laughs> went by and as they saw me, they accelerated, right? So I was like, oh, I can't stay here. Well, you were wearing a hospital gown, confusingly. <laughs> in homage to Kurt Cobain at, uh, at <laughs> yeah, the Reading exactly. Festival. And I said, I got to get out of here. So I left and started walking up the street, but it was so headless horseman-y out there, foggy and hills and stuff. I was like, I started to get really spooked by Headless Horseman. And then I cut across a, you know, like I, I was like, oh, a field. And I cut across it. And then I'm in the middle of one of those Vermonty graveyards where all the stones are like falling yeah, down yeah. and there's stones with angels carved in them and all this revolutionary war creepiness. And I started to really lose my cool Somebody was watching you in some lab doing some cabin in the woods thing to you like, all right, now let's see what he thinks of the graveyard. And he's amping up the subsonics. So I started to like really kind of not panic exactly, but I was like, get me out of this graveyard. And I, I got out of the graveyard somewhere else and stuck out my thumb and some guy in a pickup truck picked me up and he was a super creep. And the whole thing was just like, I, what am I doing here? But then it ended up. But look, yeah, look how you're here and did not get killed by a chainsaw. Yeah. In, in summary, um, Come to beautiful Vermont. <laughs> Explore beautiful Vermont. Uh, so I did stay in a house in Vermont many, many years later, and it did have a terrible ghost in it, but we'll save that for a different show. Or a past one. Or a past show. I think we've talked about we'll it talk about it a lot. We'll keep talking about it. It'll come up. Um, but uh, Satanism, you know, it has a long, or I'm sorry, fear of demons. 
uh, is uh, has a long, long history in human life. Because um, demons used to get the blame for all our ills, right? Yeah, well, come and go. They, demons come and go. Um, but I'm serious. If you know somebody who got a um, somebody who's got a skin condition or is you know bonked their head and is babbling, like you know nowadays you wouldn't say. You know, I mean, unless you unless you live in a certain part of the country, you wouldn't say, "Man, demons!" But yeah, but it's you know that's that's all sort of depending on what what uh, Christianity is doing in your neighborhood at the time. Um, you know that, that there there have been times when people were burned at the stake for uh, for de- demonic possession, um, and really what it was was they were criticizing the government. There's some traditions that are not purely European too, right? Like in you know 13th century China, I wouldn't be surprised if. Demons would uh, demons if you criticize would, the government. Yeah, <laughs> or or demons get the a tree falls over on your shed and demons get the blame, or you know you you start to lose your hair and demons get the blame. Oh yeah, there there are demons and jinns and and uh, and bears. Oh my, uh, throughout history, demons are a global presence. Yes, they are. Yes, and that's why I invested all my Bitcoin in Demons Inc. Demons dot io. But in America, you know, famously Salem witch trials were um a, kind of a hysteria a lot of the a lot of the hysteria around demons kind of uh was part of the the great jewish libel or the anti-semitic libel that we've talked about in the the uh, elders of zion episode um what, what connection gets made between anti-semitism and, and oh. demonic possession oh just that the you know that the jews were using blood, you know, Christian blood in their rights oh, right. and you know that 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 they are they, themselves they, they've got some, demonic. Yeah, they're the only people in your town that might be doing some terrible magic against you. Right. If you live in 15th century uh Poland or something. Yeah, ma- magic being a thing that that is anti-Christian. Sure. And um and but you know, in the United States it has a uh, it has a, a demonic possession wends its way through the American story. We should say we don't endorse these beliefs. Your Jewish neighbors are not making a, a golem with your, uh, with checks mix on them. Absolutely in order not. To Absolutely not. And, but, um, but we've done shows about new religious movements, uh, new spiritual movements, particularly in the 19th century in America, um, that, that at a, in, in many ways kind of trended toward spiritualism, trended toward magic and the afterlife. Ghosts and the occult. But in a kind of, you know, positive or curious way. And then there's a... Maybe even a scientific way. A scientific like, way, right? we're gonna, we're, This is how we're going to sense ghosts with this thingy. And then there's a, you know, a, a slip back into tent revivalism that often is, you know, posits itself as a counter you know, a, a new return to the, um, you know, traditional uh, brick-and-mortar Christianity, or in this case, tent-and-stake Christianity. But in all these times, there's been one constant. Demons. Demons. Demons have been one constant through the years. America's rolled by like an army of steamrollers, Ray. I was very conscious of demons uh, growing up because I was, well— for much, most of my teen teen years and twenties, I was demon adjacent. You were listening to you were listening to taboo rhythms. You were listening to ACDC. Of course, the demons were in your bedroom. 
But in the 1970s, when I was a young boy, and here's another another story that really begins in the 70s and really comes to fruition in the 80s, uh, like all of the great episodes of Omnibus. Uh, in the in the early seventies, there was a kind of um, you know a real blooming of interest in and fear of the occult and the supernatural, and it was really a uh, a perfect storm, I guess, of of a lot of. This kind of disparate things all kind of happening at once and sort of pointing at a um, pointing at a, a, a like a a supernatural world that that we need that we did need to direct science at, but also it was it became a it became a social problem or it became a um, a social concern. Well, how does this chronologically line up with what we now look back on as kind of the rise of the moral majority, religious America as a politically aligned? you know, as a, as a voting block basically is, is this the same exact same time period? The moral majority is the result of, or, or rather the moral majority was kind of founded in the, in the first big like heat wave of response to what was a late sixties origin story around Manson and Anton LaVey starting the church of Satan uh, and a kind of feeling in the air that... So it is the hippies' fault, this whole thing. Again, it's the boomers that did it. Um, a feeling that, you know, a lot of churches, a lot of... Even, so evangelicalism in America is, you know, a, a, a um, an extension of that tent revival thing. And they were, uh, you know, tilting against rock and roll from the very beginning. And the feeling that rock and roll was using African-American music to corrupt the youth and that that was that's how communism is going to get that's here. right and ultimately anti-christian but like levey formed the church of satan in 1966 and i mean if you don't want people to accuse you of being a satanist anton levey don't church don't start the church of satan i mean in don't have your name be anton levey a very satanic name <laughs> and levey was just I, you know, in my estimation, just goofing. His his book. Um, he's trolling. He's trolling, and he's having you know he's having a good time. He he writes the Satanic Bible. It's really just a bunch of, uh, you know, hoo ha and self help texts. And, you know, it's a it's a compilation. And to really, this, and to this day, that's what the Church of Satan is, right? Like, oh, the name's just there to scare the normies. Yeah, we don't even believe in Satan. We're we're a bunch of. Uh, you know, progressive atheist free thinkers, right? It's pretty cosplay. Yeah. And it's coming up in a time when biker gangs are terrorizing the the small towns of Southern California. You know, it's just part of a part of a zeitgeist, an anti authoritarian, anti culture zeitgeist. But Manson puts the puts a scare into it, right? Manson is um Manson makes Satanism look bad, for lack of a better term. You know, he converts it into he converts it into murder, and I guess that brings it home. Like that could have been your neighbor's house. You know, yeah. like people in your community. Like this was just some regular house in the Hollywood Hills, and look what happened. Look what happened. Uh, and then in 1973, the movie The Exorcist came out, and that was an extremely popular movie in its time, and it put. You know, it lodged in the the collective conscious 
a an image of satanic possession that was visceral and and terrifying. And uh, this will surprise you know twenty first century listeners or thereafter. Like um, a movie like The Exorcist could be a mega you know an R rated kind of for adults serious drama could be the biggest movie in America. The Exorcist was the top grossing movie of 1973 by a mile ahead of, and the rest of the thing looks crazy too. The sting and American graffiti. And it's all this dad stuff. You you have to get down to six or seven before you get to a Clint Eastwood or a James Bond movie. <laughs> Paper right. moon made almost as much money as live and let die. I mean, he, it was a huge phenomenon. It was a mega phenomenon. And even in our horror, our horror loving era, this was mass culture in a way that, Gen X and below cannot concede. And people really dug it. You know, they dug the scare. They dug the horror, right? The uh and and it was not it was not a slasher movie. It was uh it was a, a psychological thing. And it wasn't the fun chiller mm-hmm. in the way that the horror movies that people would have grown up with up till now. You weren't like, ooh, my nerves are all a tingle after Frankenstein and Dracula came into the lab together. It really is like, uh, I'm kind of discouraged and uh and um <laughs> alienated now after the exorcist and and it was playing on uh on other things that were in the culture at the time in the late 60s there was also uh like a a new expression of the new religious movement right there was we were seeing indian or quasi indian religions kind of brought in and new age cults the Beatles and the Maharishi, the the um, you know hippie return to the land movement, and all of it kind of combined to sort of scare the public into feeling like this generation of young boomers was out having ritual sex and uh, disbelieving in in traditional. God. If you don't know much about the stuff, it's easy for it all to coalesce in your head as one single boogeyman. Right. Like this is like it, today it's easy to kind of see the the multiple influences that were going on, but if you're a if you're a crew-cutted dad in 1970, this all looks like a singular assault. It does. And and throughout the 70s there was, you know, and we've talked uh, many times on the omnibus about the the corresponding rise in belief in UFOs and in the Bermuda Triangle and in Bigfoot, it was a it was a um, a credulous time. Uh, but by the by the late seventies, it had combined with some other influences, including the anti cult, the rise of the anti cult movement, and the anti cult movement had two hemispheres that, and and we see a lot of parallels in this today uh, on the. On the conservative side, there was the Christian countercult movement where uh, there started to be an interest in, um, you know, taking these these forlorn and wayward young Christian kids that had gone off and started believing in, you know, not Ramtha, but proto-Ramtha. Yeah, taking the waifs out of the UFO cults and the biker gangs and right. brainwashing them back to Jesus. But on the other hand, there was... Uh, there was on the kind of psychological left side of the equation a growing belief in brainwashing and in decultifying people by returning them to rationality. So from from even uh, you know Christian influenced 
religious training. Right? right. Some of those people would need deprogramming as well. That's right. And 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 Christian cults being something that they that the anti brainwashing. I'd like uh, to think I would have been part of the sensible middle in that period. I would have been just in favor of deprogramming everyone mm-hmm. deprogramming from the left everyone. and the right. And what's interesting is that, and we don't think about this as as much as maybe we should in these terms, but social work as a science, as a science and as a practical profession, only really uh, coalesced in the 1970s. You know, there'd always been social work in a Christian I'm imagining way. Salvation Army soup kitchens. Yeah, yeah, a lot of that, you know, orphans, and then the mental, ho- you know, mental hospitals, doctors of, of uh, psychiatry and psychology. But it was only in the late 60s and 70s that social work as a discipline um, and, a, and a government agency, and, and this kind of went along with the deinstitutionalization, the closing of the asylums, and social work had all of these elements, the, the um, you know, child welfare and poverty and, uh, and trauma became a, was a kind of new idea. Right, like post-traumatic stress disorder was only defined, really, and called that in 1978, and it was even though a whole generation had shell shock from World War One or whatever. Right, and that was yeah shell shock, and it was kind of thought of as like a yeah. moral weakness. Yeah, and and PTSD was first described in an Air Force study because the Air Force had sent. Uh, a response team to Jonestown after the massacre there. Oh. And, you know, the Air Force, uh, the the airmen that arrived in Jonestown to, um, you know, to, what, deal with all the bodies, you know, hundreds of, of dead people and a lot of children, and those bodies had been sitting out in tropical air for three days. Yeah. So the, the whole experience of processing that crime scene um you know, affected these airmen to a degree that the Air Force was like, we need to, you know, commission a study. And post-traumatic stress and disorder. And this is the Air Force. They'd been seeing flying saucers for decades. Well, and they'd also had all of Vietnam. I mean, all yeah. the, all these guys that were back from Vietnam, they'd been back for 10 years in a lot of cases. But it was like a post-Manson-style cult that really moved the needle. Yeah, and then, and I think in the 1980s and 90s even, I remember the... Uh, PTSD diagnosis being gradually extended to include Vietnam vets because for a lot of t- a lot of that time it was still controversial. I think I just would have assumed it was a post-Vietnam thing. That's fascinating. Yeah, and and it was. Um, so this is all part of a, like a uh, like a rise in social work and in um, in what was I think then even then called the mental health consumer movement where mental health became started to become a thing where we thought of where the business aspect of medicine started to think mm. of the sick as consumers of their product the medical product we need some new pills for them we need them all in therapy and this and you know and this was the beginning of the survivor movement survivors of abuse and so forth a recognition that they were you could think of them as a collective consumers of mental health problems and that's trauma product. as well yeah yeah Hey, John, have you ever discovered that you were still paying for a service that had renewed automatically or a free trial you thought you had canceled? Oh, this drives me absolutely crazy. It's not, uh, it's not just that I uh, 
have. It's that I that I'm terrified that I'm paying for things that I don't remember. I call these things eels um, because. I associate them with the idea of like a remora, right? A, a little just a, sucking onto yeah. the the keel of your ship. Yeah, a fish that just grabs on and holds on, and they're they're tiny, but if you have fifty of them on you, they're going to bleed you dry, and you won't notice because each little bite will be so small. No, I hate it, and I look at my bank accounts and I try to figure out like, am I? Is there some mystery thing that renews once a year that I don't know about? Some some old magazine subscription or some. Netflix account that I set up a long time ago that some ex-girlfriend is that I'm still paying for. I, it's the stuff of nightmares, Ken. I just discovered looking at a credit card bill, I happened to see that we had been paid to signed up for some service we never ever used. What was it? I'm not gonna say because they have <laughs> they have advertised on many a podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow they accidentally got signed up. Like we accidentally got signed up for them and the free trial went. And I have a recommendation for you. Like these companies do this on purpose. They want you to forget to renew. That's sure. that's the scam that gets their subscriber base to grow. But if you don't want to let greedy corporations pocket your money, I recommend you download Truebill. Truebill. To take care of all your subscriptions. T-R-U-E-B-I-L-L. Truebill. Yeah, it's a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for the subscriptions you don't need, that you don't want, or that you signed up and then forgot about. You know, magazines used to do this thing where they would send you the re- renew subscription thing, but only halfway through your subscription. Right. So you're like, oh, is it time to renew for Time Magazine? And then pretty soon you realize you've got 15 years worth of subscription paid for. We used to think that was the trickiest thing a corporation would ever do. But who knew? But that, it got worse. Yeah, they could just attach an eel to you forever. <laughs> so, so Truebill users find that they save about seven hundred and twenty dollars a year. Oh wow! Because um, they just they take the the difficult, the intentionally difficult cancellation process and turn it into a one click or one tap thing. And they've got a concierge service that you know just takes care of all of the nightmare part of this. Oh, that's cool. Two million users who have saved over a hundred million dollars total. Wow! I mean, I I believe it. I feel like I know so many people that just sort of they they wantonly subscribe to things. They have one of everything, but a lot of the, a lot of these things you forget even exist. It's not that you forget you signed up for them. Right. You don't even remember what yeah, they were. And it's not that you're like, oh, am I still getting enough use out of this subscription? Like you literally right are paying five ten dollars a month and no idea. So what do what do we do to to sign up for Truebill? Don't fall for these subscription scams, John. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash omnibus. Go right now to Truebill.com slash omnibus. You could literally save thousands of dollars a year. That's Truebill.com slash omnibus. The thing about the, about the rise of social work is that the, the initial desire to have child abuse even recognized as a, as a thing. Um, right. And not just, yeah, well, he's not a very good dad, but that's their house. Right. That's their house. Exactly. And, and so in the 1970s, a big part of the, 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 uh, the dawn of social work as a kind of agency was to, you know, to deal with child abuse survivors or children that were being abused and just to raise the public consciousness. Educate people that this is a social ill. Yeah, this is real. Yeah. Um, And so we arrive at the very late 70s, and that's when Falwell, Jerry Falwell in 1979, forms the moral majority. And it's a 
it's and you remember it, I'm sure I remember it very clearly the 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 sudden kind of um new energy that was in evangelical Christianity, and it was and this is you know just just preceding the election of Ronald Reagan of a real feeling that we need that we had lost our way that the America was full of satanists and feminists and feminists and civil rights leaders and they needed to all be you know put back into the put back under the the tent of uh, of mainstream christianity or or at the time radical christianity like at the time mainstream christian attitudes towards socialists were not what we would expect today you know there was uh, there were not anti abortion planks in uh, you know in, for a lot of protestant organizations and both political parties supported the ERA. I mean, it was really like uh, Falwell and his generation kind of creating a movement saying, we're going to redefine American Christianity to be this, and it's a certain kind of social policy. Yeah, it was it was an era of, of real mellowing in mainstream Christianity. There was a lot more kumbaya. The, the, the Catholic Church had had Vatican II a dozen years before and were, you know, liberalizing um, and so, yeah, this was a Jerry re- had had it up to here. He had with with uh, folk songs around the campfire. And another element, in addition to global communism, uh, was that the late '60s and mid '70s were also mid to late '70s were also a period where there were suddenly very visible serial killers who were taunting mm. uh, the press. There was the Zodiac Killer, there was Bundy, there was Gacy. This is all post-Manson kind of uh, escalation and uh, imitation, right? Yeah, Son of Sam, and then in, in Washington, the Green River Killer. Well, actually, a lot of these are in Washington. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're hitting above our way. Um, and and the pan, you know, if you think about the Son of Sam panic in New York in the late 70s, uh, just the sense that there were, uh, that there was some killer that was, you know, like waiting for you when you came home at night. And it was an epical summer defining thing. Every day it would be like, Hey, what's the latest headline in the post? You know, like that, that's kind of the only thing that's going on in the biggest city in the world. Yeah. Pretty exciting. Right. Um, well let's go back a little bit to the late sixties during this heady and exciting time. Um, in, in this period, there was, um, also a rise in the popularity and, and believe me in the late sixties, it was not yet uh, mainstream at all. It was, it was a very gradual and very fringe rise, kind of like the, the rise of wife swapping, but this was board gaming. Oh, even worse. And, um, and traditionally like war games, war gaming, um, as a, as a hobby yeah. was about moving armies around, right? You were Napoleon and, and, you know, and here came the British or here came the Russians. We've reminisced about these kind of bookshelf games for bookish types who would have, you know, 27 day long right. reenactments of the, the Psalm or whatever it is. Yeah. The, you know, risk. I mean, you're playing, you're playing these global kind of, uh, kind of games. But it was really the first time people would insert their head into a game, you know, in a way that wouldn't happen if you were playing a buddy chess by mail or something. And in a pre-video game era, you know, it was hard for people to imagine that you would just kind of insert your consciousness into a gaming world for for weeks on end. And what what the what and the interesting transition that happened in the late 60s was the rise of the very first 
war games where they were actually role playing, where where you weren't moving armies around, that you could actually personify yourself in the game as a single character and enter into a campaign and have a have a personality. Except I've been playing Monopoly that way for years. Yeah, right. Oh boy, that's my hotel. You're like, I'm a shoe. I'm Mr. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did a shoe get ahead in this town and buy a hotel? I don't know. I've always been a shoe in my heart. <laughs> I'm a big thimble. Give me your money. Um, but so so let's talk about a man that we've discussed on the show before uh, a little bit. And and uh, this comes up over and over. And I think it, it, partly it comes up in the omnibus because it has a lot of contemporary analogs. And, and I think you and I both are kind of fascinated by it. And it's still, this history is still alive. I mean, it's, it's all this is happening within my lifetime. And I think when futurelings look back at the, at this era, late 20th century, early 21st century, they're going to think of it as, as the role-playing, uh, you know, it, it'll be the furries that come to dominate. You were born in the 70s? Do you, did you know Gary Gygax? <laughs> and that's who we're talking about, Gary Gygax, who was a, a Chicago-born gamer, you know, fascinating gamer guy. And Gygax is a, is a, a very interesting product of his time. Um, not quite an Asimov, not quite a Heinlein, but, a, but, but, a, but was reading those guys yeah, for sure. And, and definitely like a, a, a kind of, um, a, a big personality. Gygax was a gamer and he, um, he started, uh, Gen Con, the original kind of like board game conference and the granddaddy or grandmommy of all the subsequent cons, Comic-Con and Dragon Con. He creates con culture, pretty much. He does. And it's it's for what? It's for um, college kids and and uh, and uh, greatest generation dads who like playing war ba- games. Ba- battleship games? Yeah, yeah war, war gaming and so forth. And everybody gets together um, in the Midwest in... You know, now it's in Indianapolis, but it was... It was just some roadside Ramada somewhere. Yeah, it was in Wisconsin. It, it, it was, uh, yeah, well, well, yeah, it was in Wisconsin for a long time. And, and Gygax actually moved to Wisconsin to a town called Lake Geneva, where he lived the rest of his life. Except for, you know, he moved, he went to Hollywood at one point to, uh, to make, for his big break. But he moved back to, to Lake Geneva. It's kind of like... He wanted to see Marlon Wayans make the Dungeons and Dragons movie, and, you know, who among us wouldn't? Yeah, it's it's a little bit like Dave Chappelle living in Yellow Waterfall, Ohio, or wherever it is he lives. <laughs> How's that going for him? <laughs> I think it keeps him keeps him from getting uh, get paint thrown on him in, in the streets. Uh, so Gygax starts uh, Gen Con, and he's working with a, a couple of other people. He's kind of very influenced by Tolkien, who's also a counterculture, a hero counterculture, now. and yeah. and creating this world of demons and and uh, supernatural characters. Mythology's big, right? It's all it's all kind of you know in this coalescing storm. And Gygax creates uh, a, a role playing game, an initially you know basic. The basic form of it is a boxed little game like a like you would buy like Monopoly um, called Dungeons and Dragons. And it gradually, you know, Dungeons and Dragons is popular within this small subculture, but only selling, you know, a couple thousand 
D and D boxes. He's he's probably boxing them up in his garage and putting them in the mail or, or selling a hundred at Gen Con every year. He he for sure is. But it's you know it's popular within this world and partly it's part of this new um, first person game gamer game. It's just like these military campaigns. Except wouldn't it be fun if you could fight the orcs you read about in The Hobbit instead of instead of Nazis or or uh, Confederates? Right. And and. Um, and then in 1977, and 77 is a big, a big year for this. Star uh, Wars, too. It's Star Wars, and it's the introduction of advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Dungeons & Dragons needed to get advanced for it to catch on. And advanced D&D was something that they expected, you know, you'd start with basic D&D, and, which was more of a lighthearted, fun thing. And then advanced D&D, they came out with these books that we've described before. A lot of structure, a lot of rules. That's the, that's the fun of it. Yeah, it's the complexity. Super rule based, super complex. And then you would evolve, you know, as a as a game player, you would go to advanced D and D. And again, it was um, it was selling to this target audience of about three thousand people. Um, super, you know, super. I guess. Um, what would what would how would you describe it? Yeah, it was for. It was for the tactical side of the gaming community, less than the like. We let's sit down and and play Dungeons and Dragons for a couple of hours. I remember my parents discovering it right around seventy nine or eighty. Is that is that the moment when the burbs? It is caught wind of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. It is, and we'll see that in a second. Now, oh, sorry, I jumped ahead. No, no, no. That's all right. We, that you're you're exactly. You have given me the my entree. Yeah. Uh, there's another thing that's happening at the same time in the culture, which kind of plays into this story too. In 1977, uh, Clive Barker wrote the book Theater Games Ugh. about improvisational theater as a kind of fun new way of of theaterizing. And improv theaters has been a, you know, has a long history, right? All the way back to medieval times. Uh, and it was, it in the 50s and 60s was very popular in Chicago and in Toronto as a kind of, you know, the second Del city. Close and second city. And all of that fed into the popularity of Saturday Night Live, which often felt completely improvised. Uh, and by 77, you know, Saturday Night Live was in the, it, uh, again, enormously popular. And... Theater games became a sort of seminal work, followed in 79 by Keith Johnson's invention of theater sports. And so the fact that it's Clive Barker means this is where kind of a geek gamer horror audience first discovers the tools of improv comedy, God help us. <laughs> right. Leading to and this, the destruction of civilization. <laughs> this will be the, this, this is the moment. Uh, but this is what, um, but this is, this becomes the flavor of, of D and D gaming, then yeah, right. There's a new, there's a there's a new energy around improvising. Um, it's not a campaign so much as it is like uh, it's also like now it's a social thing and it's a skit. Yeah, and and it's cosplaying without the cause. Yeah. Um, yeah, my parents were not dressing as wizards. Are you sure? Didn't you go to bed at a certain time? We were never allowed to go down to that chain basement. <laughs> yeah. What was your bedtime? It was nine o'clock. And when did they go to bed? When are mommy and daddy getting their special robes? <laughs> Two thirty in the morning. So 
now let's uh, now we're we've set the stage. It's 1979. <laughs> At this rate, this may be the longest <laughs> omnibus yet. I guess we did start in medieval times, so yeah, we're, we're, doing, we're doing good. Yeah, we've 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 uh, we started with like Jesus and the lepers. So. We're going to start accelerating now. Um, in 1979, a uh, Michigan State student by the name of James Dallas Egbert III. Mm, I feel his pain. James Egbert was kind of socially struggling. He was doing drugs. And this is something that people uh, probably don't remember. But About computer science majors? That they struggle socially and do drugs? <laughs> they did a lot of drugs. And in, in 1979, 16-year-olds were all on drugs. I don't think right. that's true now. Right. Now they're all on games. Now you're just shocked when you watch the Goonies and they say, like, you're like, wait, yeah. these are kids. They can't say that. Yeah. Bad news bears. I mean, they were <laughs> right. having sex and drinking beer. They were saying the N-word probably. I don't know. Uh, but so James Dallas Egbert having a hard time in college uh, and was he was going to summer school at Michigan State. And at a certain point, uh, he wrote a suicide note. That he was that he'd had it and and it, and it was all over and when when and if they found his body, uh, he wanted it to you know he wanted to be set on fire put put in a canoe and set on fire and sent down the river sticks or whatever but, I don't but, remember what the suicide note but he, but he did have some kind of grandiose possibly mythological suicide note? it was just a regular suicide note oh, okay. um and the. The cops investigating the disappearance because, you know, he was, he was gone for a couple of days, but then pretty soon he was gone for a week and, and it, it became a thing, um, that the cops kind of needed to direct more attention to. And there was a kind of cryptic poster board in his dorm room that had some stick pins in it that, that they felt like maybe was, was a significant clue. Why are the police trying to solve a suicide? (laughs) <laughs> well, it's a disappearance. Oh, this is before the body's found. Yeah, and this oh, could okay. be, this is a situation where, well, you know, it could be sure. Satan, it could be a lot of things. Um, they, but pro- the, they probably didn't start with Satan. They didn't start with Satan, but it was, it, be- it quickly kind of, the, the evidence pointed to the fact that uh, the James Egbert did play role-playing games, although was not, you know, b- there was no account of him being obsessed with it or or, um, or you know, losing his head. And he also liked the steam tunnels that were under Michigan State University. So, you know, steam tunnels being a... Anybody would like the steam t- tunnels under Michigan State University. I mean, if, if that makes you a Satanist, then I guess, John, I'm a Satanist. And he did imply in his suicide note that he would be found in the steam tunnels. Now, James Egbert was depressed and was uh, tripping out, and he did take a bunch of quaaludes and go down into the steam tunnels, hoping to overdose and die, and then have his body found in the steam tunnels, and this would be his 16-year-old glorious end. But again, I don't hear Satan anywhere in this dissociative no, he was story. Just a, he was just a kid that had access to quaaludes that wanted to die in a steam tunnel. Pretty common. Uh, but he woke up from the quaaludes. He didn't die. Didn't take enough quaaludes. Oh, that's why we're ha- having such a merry take on this story. I was kind of, <laughs> I was kind of wondering. <laughs> he's and, still alive, and he, real, <laughs> and he's with us here today. James, say hi to the folks. <laughs> he's not, unfortunately, because uh, well, for you know, spoiler alerts. But uh, he's embarrassed, and he goes and stays with a friend, and says, you know, don't tell anybody that I'm here. 
His parents feel like the cops are doing a bad job of investigating the uh, the disappearance of their son. And they hire a detective by the name of William Deere. And William Deere doesn't have any experience of uh, cults. And these game, these role-playing games are brand new. And so he goes around kind of asking Egbert's friends um, to describe Dungeons & Dragons. And he puts together a theory that Egbert has gotten obsessed with uh, role-playing games and was going down into the steam tunnels to act out his Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Makes sense. Dungeon is in the name. He's going into the closest thing to a dungeon that I'm sure Michigan state university has to offer. It does. I mean, it's like, I kind of want to be charitable to the kind of alarmed moms we're going to be meeting in this story because I have teenagers myself and often you're at wit's end. You're an alarmed mom in a lot of these cases. I'm an alarmed mom pretty much all the time. And, and there, I do understand the temptation to, to kind of blame the new thing you don't understand, you know, like when I found out like my teens were like, like knew all these people on, on social media or whatever, you know, I was like, wait, I, I wasn't talking to strangers from Mexico when I was that age. Like, you know, is, is wait a minute. Didn't you do a, a, a Mormon mission in Mexico, Spain, Spain, well, but not the Mexico was, of Europe. Not when, I, not when I was 14. I think Portugal's in Mexico. Not when I was 14. But you, you know what I mean. Like you're, or you're like, I didn't. I never played this many hours of video games a day. And now right. my teen is like hollow-eyed and uh, doesn't like talking to me. No, your teen is hollow-eyed and doesn't like talking to you because they're on Quaaludes. <laughs> well, because they're 15. You know, <laughs> yeah, like. Right. But it's easy to make it Minecraft's fault or whatever. Whatever the thing is, you didn't have. Well, like I say, uh, leading up to this moment, culturally there are probably 50 vectors pointing at the total plausibility that a kid would get involved in fantasy gaming, become obsessed with it in combination with drugs, start acting out his crazy, uh, fantasies and also be, uh, susceptible to cults, demonic possession which may or may not be real and and jerry falwell and the moral majority really wanted demonic possession to be real it powered a lot of their you, you can uh, literally literally demonize your opponents if there are demons if responsible are demons. for um for you know now that there's gays in the schools or whatever jerry falwell is mad about and also on the other side on the science uh, and you know and and liberal mental health side there's a lot of energy around uh, mental illness and and um, and schizophrenia, yeah, and also so you got, know you've got the languages of religion and science to kind of right alarm you here. So it is kind of conceivable in this moment, and particularly James Egbert being a kind of brilliant uh, boy, that his parents would seek an explanation greater than that he just. Um, and particularly that he left a suicide note, went into the steam tunnels, and then could not be found. Yeah. And William Deere made a big show of going down and and um, searching the steam tunnels again and again. And he he publicized this. He was he was kind of uh, initially a showman. Yeah. Now, again, a spoiler alert. It turns out that after many, 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 many years of um, of investigation into 
the role that Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games played in the role that role-playing played the role that the role that role-playing played Delhi. Uh, the science seems to indicate that, in fact, role players and gamers have a much lower rate of suicide. Uh, that in almost no instance do Dungeons and Dragons players or or role playing gamers ever actually go out and play with role a, play in with, the, with a mace. Yeah, I mean there there is um, the the creative anachronism people. There, there, there is a culture. There's LARPing of of LARPing, but it's not really connected to yeah. gaming. It's um, like none of the none of the panic around. Well, n- none of the satanic panic. No element of it was fact based. <laughs> none, none of it ever. Well, none of it stands up to scrutiny. Right throughout the the entire satanic panic era, there were over twelve thousand instances where, um. Satanism, like someone was accused of of satanic ritual, and in the of the twelve thousand, zero of them were ever demonstrated by evidence to have. They're, they're, like there, there are no satanic sex cults. Young people are just too lazy, yeah, to get velvet robes and a stone altar, and uh, and carve uh, occult symbols in them. Yeah, nobody follows through on this. If you're if you want to kill somebody, you you just go kill them, right? Or I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's even Anton Lavey is just saying he's a satanist, yeah. but he doesn't have time for all of that. Yeah, this all is, that Alistair Crowley stuff. What a drag! This is hard work, right? Satanism. <laughs> Anyway, uh, James Egbert is now in the newspaper every day. He's he's like cowering in his friend's apartment in East Lansing, Michigan, and he kind of his friend kicks him out, and he goes to some other friend. Everywhere he goes, he's making people promise don't let don't tell anybody. What's the time frame here? Is he gone for like days or weeks? Uh, he's gone for weeks, and uh, and uh, William Deere is. I mean, the story now becomes a national news story. This kid is playing this uh, this this strange new game, Dungeons and Dragons. He got lost in an actual dungeon. So this is before the game has actually arrived to, at most people's attention in other ways. This is the first way a lot of people are hearing of so it. So this is 1979. This is when your parents got it. Because in the space between the disappearance of James Egbert and when he was found, sales of Dungeons and Dragons went from 3000 a year to 30000 wow. a year and then 30000 a month. So next time I have a book out... Yeah. I need to make sure some kid reads my book, uh, stoned out of his head on mushrooms and wanders into the woods. Right. And then have it be connected to your weird, creepy theories about maps or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Pro- probably. Uh, eventually, James Egbert hitchhikes to Louisiana Whoa. and starts to try and live down there. He got a job as a... You know, sweeping floors. He got a job. He's probably followed the news cycles about him. Yeah. Oh no, no. It's it's in the newspapers everywhere, and eventually starts to feel bad. He's only sixteen. He probably misses his mom, and he calls William Deer, announces that he's alive and in Louisiana. Deer drives down there to pick him up, and Egbert makes Deer promise that he won't reveal that he was just. <laughs> well, no, not a goof. I mean, he tried to commit suicide and failed and then was embarrassed and then went to Louisiana. Oh, I see. He was just like, don't tell any of this don't story. Don't tell my parents it's just a drug and suicide story. Yeah, just say that you found me and... and, and Tell them I'm an eighth level halfling. Uh, <laughs> all of these stories make it seem like James Dallas Egbert is also very charismatic because how do you convince... It's the number one story in the country and you've got three friends hiding you in East Lansing and nobody lets on? 
And then he gets he convinces the detective not to tell the story. Well, maybe he's convincing the detective to tell a more interesting story. You know, like stick with the yeah, stick right. with the Donahue stuff. Right. You found me. Okay. Wink, wink. John, I know some portion of our futureling audience is a business owner of some kind. I have to believe that in the future, all sentient beings will be entrepreneurs. There will be 5 billion life forms, intelligent life forms on earth, each of whom owns one small business. Right. It will become very hard to name your business because all the names are taken. It will be hard, except it, uh, the, in the future, they will speak a tonal language. And so you can have the same name, just just differently pitched. So speaking to an audience of either business owners or people with a business idea, no matter how big, no matter how small, we would like to recommend to you the services of Shopify. Shopify is a tool that allows you to connect with your customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day in a ton of ways. Yeah, it's uh, as speaking as a small business owner, I know you've been uh, your your sole proprietor of your enormous my media empire. Media empire. Uh, it's tough to to get all your ducks in a row. You're selling stuff. You're charging people stuff. You're marketing for stuff. You're you know, all that in a, in a larger company, each one of those right. tasks has someone that's a in charge department. of it or yeah, whole, whole and team. You, and you're competing with companies that do that. What you wanted, what you wish you would have is some kind of suite of products that would let you do all this stuff, except all major payment methods, integrate with any kind of third party app you wanted, whether that's accounting or chatbots, handle all your social media, synchronize different kinds of sales. Um, Shopify offers all that. And we are here to offer you a free 14-day trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features by going to shopify.com slash omnibus. That's right, John. We're bringing something to the table too. We have this amazing offer. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash omnibus right now. Shopify instantly lets you accept all major payment methods and has thousands, and that's from customers, not just to buy their product, and has thousands of integrations and third-party apps from on-demand printing to accounting to advanced chatbots and beyond. Shopify powers over 1.7 million businesses. A new entrepreneur discovers the wonders of the Shopify suite every 28 seconds. That's shopify.com slash omnibus for your 14-day free trial. Dear does keep Egbert's confidence. And unfortunately, Egbert remains a very, um, a very like sad and. That was not the end of his troubled. No, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he ended up less than a year later actually succeeding in killing himself with a gun. But, um, but Deer continues to keep his secret. So, as this is all going on, as it's a, like a kind of a major event in the culture, an author by the name of Rona Jaffe uh, sees, sees the moment, seizes the opportunity, and very quickly writes a book called Mazes and Monsters, which came out in 1981. It's fiction or? It's fiction. It's complete. You know, it's, it's, a, it's just a, a pulp novel. And, and you know, uh, Rona, you know, like basically jotted it down partly in fear that she was going to get, uh, you know, 
that 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 somebody else was scooped, there, right? Yeah, there if were you're probably, writing a quickie bestseller, there were probably fifty people writing mazes and monsters at the time, and hers was the first to market, and it was kind of a a, a minor hit. And in 1982, a film, a TV movie, Mazes and Monsters, came out. It was the first starring role of Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks. Have you seen Mazes and Monsters? I have not. I think it's, you can now get it on DVD and Blu-ray, and it's it's got the kind of the ironic reefer madness appeal. Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's uh, it's you know, it's hilarious, and 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 it it posits this world that college students, gifted college students, are dressing up in robes with swords and going down into steam tunnels and caverns and playing real Dungeons and Dragons with real consequences. Does any of this? I mean, does it insulate the game from it that, like, they're not playing D&D, they're playing a crazy, weird D&D, or does, does Backlash start to hit Gygax's growing empire? Well, so, um, Gygax's growing empire isn't affected in any way by this, except that it quadruples in profitability publicity. by the end of 1980. Um, and it becomes a kind of, now, generally accepted cultural understanding that this is really happening. And I remember it very distinctly. In 1980, I was in seventh grade. I was reading The Hobbit and playing Dungeons and Dragons. And it was on everybody's lips. It was in everyone's mind that uh, that in playing Dungeons and Dragons as a young person, there was every possibility that you would disappear into a steam tunnel and get addicted to but was it like heavy Killing metal hobbits. where that was actually uh that was actually a, a feature, not a bug for the kids who were getting into it? It certainly was interesting to me, and I remember kind of trying to gin up in myself enough interest in the fantasy world that I could that I could even begin to consider uh, uh playing it for real. And I really did. I remember on my long walks home from seventh grade, because when I was in seventh grade I had to walk two miles uphill in the snow both ways to school. The Alaska way. Um, you know, kind of picturing supernatural enemies and fighting them with my flaming sword. Uh, and, you know, kind of was working on like, maybe I can do magic, you know, maybe I can conjure an orb with my hand. It does work. And I was... Just stick to being a level eight barbarian or whatever i was not able to conjure an orb and i was not able to get enough going on i'm imaginative but i could not care enough to really start well there are no steam tunnels in alaska and any tunnels would be very cold and damp but you know it didn't it didn't it didn't catch right. but but it was it was kind of in time magazine it was a plausible sort of um so if there were people doing this it was a it was in backlash to the to the um, alarmism, it was you know it may, it may have motivated more people to start fooling around with this stuff than ever would have otherwise. Oh, for sure, it's the Streisand effect yeah. where you know she says, "Don't take a picture of my house," and then everybody on the internet has a picture of her house. Um, the the fear around Dungeons and Dragons started to become kind of feverish, and you know particularly when uh, when Egbert killed himself. Um, He's back in the Netherlands and. And Deer hasn't revealed his his the the secret that he that he um, that he promised Egbert he wouldn't tell. But in '84, uh, Deer feels like his the the his responsibility to keep the secret has gone to the grave with Egbert, and he writes a book called The Dungeon Master, where 
he kind of comes correct on the whole issue and says that the that in fact Egbert was just a depressed kid. There doesn't seem to be any evidence for this, you know, the truth of this world that that uh, that he was partly responsible for creating, that Deer was responsible for creating, and tries to debunk it. Um, but like a lot of the attempts to debunk cults and whatnot, it, it doesn't gain any traction. People really like the idea. And it begins to be a thing in law enforcement where – as we've seen cops, recently, who are cops not, are very susceptible <laughs> to this kind of... Uh, yeah, the least culpable and most science-based uh, arm of, of the world. I just saw a mimeograph cops. thing in my church uh, my church foyer. So, moral majority and the, the jack chicks of the world uh, start to reach out to law enforcement and to legislators saying, this is a real threat. The Satanists are here. What's a candidate going to do if asked, what are you going to do about demon summoning in your district? Yeah. You're not going to say you're for it. Yeah, no, of course not. <laughs> I mean, how long have you supported the demons, right? Uh, and teenagers and heavy metal iconography puts Satanism right in everybody's lap. As you mentioned uh ACDC uses a lot of that iconography. Led Zeppelin throughout their whole history had a kind of Norse magical w- thing. Well, that and also uh, Aleister Crowley, yeah. the kind of rehabilitation of all this stuff. And then, I mean, Rush 2112 has a pentagram. Yeah, let's blame Prague. It's all Rush's fault. So if you're looking for evidence that there is that there is a global Satanist conspiracy to get young people into a cult, a blood cult, you can find the evidence everywhere. And a lot of it is it is tongue-in-cheek fun. Yeah, wasn't TSR kind of trolling too? Like, Absolutely. I, I feel like the game at this time was full of demons. Like, when did Fiend Folio come out? Like, like um, TSR is really playing up the demonology of their own game, even as this moral panic begins. They're super into it. And, you know, and, and Gary Gygax is a nut and a... And a uh, high roller and kind of a bad businessman. And um, he's not, you know, he doesn't feel like this moral panic is anything other than hilarious. But then it gets real because a young man by the name of Irving Pulling um, commits suicide and is known to be a Dungeons and Dragons player. And his mother, Patricia Pulling, um, blames at first the principal of his high school, hmm. a man by the name of Robert Bru- uh, uh, Robert Bracy the Third, giving some credence to my theory that yeah, this is like the middle name Wayne. Yeah, of, uh, there shouldn't be thirds. You just your, your grandfather dies and you become the second. If you get your wish, you're going to have a different co-host. She sued the principal uh, and claimed that the principal had put a and d curse on Irving. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The principal... So it's not just the principal, but he had a... The principal had... A, the principal introduced... Had, had satanic majesties requesting. Yeah. Introduced Irving to Dungeons & Dragons. Do you think that was true? Was he a hip... Was he a hip principal who was, like, telling the kids about the cool gaming stuff? Almost certainly, right? He... Uh, uh, Robert Br- Bracey was just, yeah, your groovy guy who was like, you know what? Awkward kids. Why don't you meet me in the lunchroom? Uh, and Here's we'll- something you don't know about me. I'm also the level 12 uh, uh, cleric um, Grimgar. <laughs> exactly. 
So Patricia Pulling becomes convinced that Irving died as a result of his Dungeons and Dragons activities. And law enforcement at this point is primed for, uh, for this to be true. And partly because, yeah, there's a lot of evangelical Christianity, uh, like law enforcement overlap, yeah. but there's also, you know, th- this is an opportunity to kind of make good on all of the serial killers that they didn't find throughout the seventies and all of the Manson, you know, <laughs> how exciting to, if a, if a, one of these kind of boring suburban crimes actually does turn out to be some kind of a, uh, uh, devilish crime ring of some kind. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, uh, you know, Manson's in Hollywood Hills, but this is, you know, East Lansing, Michigan, how, how fun or, or in the case of Patricia pulling Richmond, Virginia. So it's borderline South. Yeah. It gives the cops, uh, something to get excited about. And she, um, she goes on 60 minutes and Ed Bradley, come on, Ed Bradley, I expect <laughs> better of, of, uh, early 80s, 60 minutes. Yeah, you would. Right. But, uh, but, but it, this is, you know, it's part of the kind of Bigfoot uh, UFO fallout. Like, all, any of this seems possible, and the media really does. People don't forget when you jump on the thing that turns out to be bogus. Yeah. Like, all the people writing today about Havana Syndrome are never going to be held accountable for the dumb things they thought. Like, you just want to jump on in case it does turn out to be the next big the next big fear. You yeah. Want, you want to scare people first. As someone who who uh, used to believe in the media as the uh, as the... Not the fourth estate, but the... I used to believe know. in Ed Bradley in yeah, particular. Yeah, f- for sure. 60 Minutes. Uh, but but a lot of the criticism of media, of sensationalist media in the 80s and 90s, it, uh, a lot of that criticism holds water. That this, was a, this was a ratings boom. And it really made Patricia pulling into a national media star. Mm-hmm. And she ends up getting her private investigator's license and become, and writes a book called The Devil's Web... Who is stalking your children for Satan? I mean, I would like to know who is stalking my children for Satan. I'd buy the book just to find out, even if it turns out to be the answer to be no one. So she ends up becoming a law enforcement resource. And this, this becomes a very profitable side gig for a whole lot of kind of kooks um, who, who advertise themselves as uh, Satan experts, Dungeons and Dragons experts, and they make all kinds of videos uh, and do training sessions with law enforcement to recognize when it's a when it's a spray painted star and when it's a spray painted pentagram. Mm. And so Patricia Pulling forms an advo- advocacy group, a, um, a political action committee, uh, and I think she might have chosen the acronym first, BAD, B A D D, and then filled in the words "bothered about Dungeons and Dragons." Considering that her son is dead, I feel like she should be more than bothered. Yeah, bothered it seems a little bit tame, right? It does seem like she, you know, she's a little bit um, irritated about Dungeons & Dragons. She could have called it dad disgusted about Dungeons & Dragons. I, I assume this postdates the idea of parental advocacy groups like MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. That's, yeah, 1980. Right. So she's fo- following in the footsteps of these other kinds of PTA-friendly organizations, which... Gives her some legitimacy. Yeah, she could have. It could have been sad, sick about Dungeons and Dragons. That seems that seems better. Was there a sad later? Mm, students, students I against think. drunk drivers. Right. Yeah. She could have gotten in on the ground floor of that. Um. So right about that time, sort of by the late eighties, it had become a um, like a cultural 
truism that Satanists were had infected the globe. And there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of victims of the satanic panic that could also be their own omnibus entries. Um, the West Memphis Three get convicted of satanic murder because they were a bunch of dopey goths. Yeah. Um, uh, the McMartin preschool Satan uh, trial, which ended up being the largest, longest, and most expensive trial in California history. Uh, the belief that they had also dug tunnels under their preschool and were... It's always tunnels. It, it, yeah. It's right right back to the Hillary Clinton's pizza joint. They were charged it, with 321 tunnels. counts of childhood ritual abuse. Don't these people know there's no basement in the Alamo? Uh, the, right. The Pizzagate with Hillary Clinton, Amanda Knox's prosecution. Um, there, are, there are actually uh, like a whole lot of people still in prison with life sentences for convictions of ritual murder for which there is no evidence of any kind, except that they were goths or weird or, I mean, a lot of it was just, was just cop hysteria. I mean, that's the thing. We should not be surprised that there's, um, you know, a disproportionate number of troubled teens or teen suicides where, you know, there's certain uh, genres of music or certain hobbies that they have in common because, it's a it's a matter of correlation, not causation. You know, your your kid was a, a misfit and a loner, and that's why they listened to this music, and that's why they played D and D instead of being on the lacrosse team. And so, a, a higher than average number of law enforcement will find a higher than average number of kids who sure. who played D and D, and it's the other way around. They were troubled, and then they played D and D. They didn't get troubled because they played D and D, and that continued into modern times, right? Soundgarden, all their music was, uh, you know, about. I mean, it sounded like Led Zeppelin, but it was about spooky drugs and suicide. And then, I mean, contemporary music in the metal genre. Still, I mean, if you looked at my own record collection and judged that every every album that had satanic imagery or people wearing scary makeup yeah uh that's like 80 percent of the music i have including all the 50s jazz and it wasn't and it wasn't a ploy. it's all your alice cooper and your 50s jazz <laughs> and it wasn't a ploy i mean when you look at the history of these groups there's a lot of drugs and suicide sure. like they they were reacting to this they were you know propagating the aesthetic they reacted to in 1988 uh a man by the name of leith van stein was brutally murdered and his wife uh, uh brutally injured in their home and it quickly, uh, it quickly kind of came out that his stepson, Chris Pritchard, had enlisted two of his college friends to murder his stepfather for his $2 million estate. And in the investigation around the, um, the murders, uh, his two accomplices and he were all convicted of conspiracy to murder in the case of one of them who did the actual deed murder, but it came out at trial that they were all Dungeons and Dragons players and that the murder, although clearly was a murder for, for profit, for profit, um, got tied up in this idea that they were, did they, did they discuss it in terms of yeah. a campaign yeah, and you know, character names? Yeah, it was, and, well, no, but they, they, you know, it, this was part of the, um, part of the, the hullabaloo around the trial that they were, and, and, and it came at a perfect moment in the culture. 1988, we're looking for Satan murders. 
There, there are uh, uh, a, remarkably few. Deplorable dearth of Satan murders, and here's, considering the massive <laughs> Satan murder industry. Here's a great Satan murder, and it spawns two different books, one by Joe McGinnis, Cruel Doubt, and one by Jerry Bledsoe, Blood Games, both of which really hype um, the, uh, the Satan murder aspect, uh, going so far as to take images from TSR monster manuals and doctoring them in the in the books to you know kind of point more toward the 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 style of murder of von Stein and you know like really making the case that this was a satanic murder although there's zero evidence that it was if I remember right my parents were kind of susceptible to this like when my brother got really into you know D and D in um, in middle and high school even though they had you know kind of fooled around with the early fantasy role playing box games around 1980, my parents were still like, now, which of these D&D books are you buying? Is, does that one have any of the devils in it? I, my brother listens to the show. I'm sure he can clarify whether, but that's my memory that they were still like, oh, I don't know. Well, interestingly, TSR finally responded to this. It became, it was directing so much attention at Dungeons and Dragons that in the second edition of Dungeons and Dragons that came out in 1989, they removed the words demon and devil from all of the their well from all of the books so they renamed devils and demons and they gave them uh devils became batazu 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 well that seems even more it does, alarming right and and demons were now renamed tanari tanari i'm sure these are just like arabic or persian terms for like devils and devils demons. and demons like this seems like exactly what Satan would do. He would want, you know, the greatest trick he ever pulled was convincing suburban <laughs> teens that he didn't exist. And right. instead he was a Ba'atu uh, or something. Uh, 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 but, you know, but TSR was, was, I think that there's a kind of story about the, at, at the time TSR had uh, a single receptionist, a woman who spent a lot of the eighties answering the phone and explaining to, panicked reporters who were on deadline uh, that that uh, there was no satanic ritual abuse in Dungeons and Dragons. Is there ever immediate pushback? Like, do, does the tide ever turn? Only much later. Um, Michael Stackpole, the, you know, the, the kind of famous uh, geek culture writer and creator, uh, writes a book called Game, or I'm sorry, writes an article called Game Hysteria and Truth, partly responding to Patricia Pulling. Did you have something to say about Stackpole? No, I was just looking him up. Oh. He's a role-playing guy. Yeah. Battletech books. Yeah. Stackpole wrote, wrote the Battletech books. He's a legendary character in the scene. And then he published, uh, he published a book called The Pulling Report in 1990 that basically disabused tried to disabuse the world of all of the the efforts of bad. But that stuff never works. It didn't work, and Patricia Pulling continued to have a uh, a role, you know, continued to profit from her. And, you know, she's a grieving mother, but bad became a, um, like a profitable enterprise in advising police departments and, and, uh, and ministers about what to do to combat your local Dungeons and Dragons Satanists. Uh, and that lasted until she died of cancer in 97. It was not until, I mean, the, the satanic panic lasted all through the nineties and into the two thousands. I mean, you think about Amanda Knox 
and continues to this day in the form of the conspiracy theories about the Democrats eating babies and they, all the QAnon they, stuff. They've got their secret satanic reason. Now it's powered by kind of an alternate media and social media technology, which really is, turns out is much more efficient than, you know, mimeographed pamphlets on a church billboard. Like, you know, we're at the point where the 25% of America who believes in this stuff can now find each other and form a voting bloc. And what's interesting is that only now, and by that I mean just in the last year or two, is the media, the, the, you know, the, the thinking class, reviewing the satanic panics of the 80s and 90s as a way of trying to understand. There are all these retrospective articles now uh, that are, you know, kind of looking back at this as a cultural phenomenon and kind of acknowledging, I mean, the media never acknowledges its own complicity, but acknowledging the complicity of earlier media, right? Vox <laughs> is, is outing 60 minutes and Buzzfeed or wired. Take or, that you know, Phil Donahue. That's right. Um, and it's, you know, it's now again, kind of a, uh, th- there's finally a recognition that after 1992, there was like, the the panic the moral panic all started to focus on video games and there was not a single sort of um dungeons and dragons related satan case they went underground like they, yeah well right that's the greatest trick that satan ever pulled well i'm kind of wondering if it's going to be you know if you look at the the ritual hysteria around Halloween trick-or-treat poisoning for example right you'll find that the only documented cases are people who were aware of the cases that were inspired by the actual fake hysteria, you know, yeah. like, like, I guess I think we're lucky that there were no like actual D and D killings that were brought about by people who were convinced that D and D killing was a thing. Yeah. You it's know, a, trouble, it, trouble teens who are like, Oh, I guess, I guess we're supposed to murder old man, uh, old man, uh, Johnson. Now it's very interesting, especially in terms of gaming that, um, you know, there's a lot of pushback about whether or not violent video games and violent films you know, create a, an atmosphere or the conditions where violence and mass violence is acceptable. And, it, and there's a tremendous pushback to that notion. Right. And I think that's because there is some research suggesting in many cases it's it's like a healthy outlet for these feelings that kids are going to have anyway. Right? Yeah, and that's the argument the juggalos use too. <laughs> um, but also, you know, like a lot of the research that goes into it, it's impossible to determine. You know, when you when when I two teenagers wanna, shoot up their high school, how where you know I just want a double blind test where I take a hundred kids from the same <laughs> suburb and I make fifty of them play uh, advanced D D six hours a day. And then you see, like, you know, how many of them end up uh, doing ritual murders. In the uh, in the 90s, Wizards of the Coast, again, a Seattle right. company, bought TSR. And by the third edition, they started to put demons and devils back in it. Ah, Satan had a long con here. He did. Um, there have been a couple further editions. Uh, with a lot of real doubling down on Satan's and demons. There are a lot of, there's just <laughs> If like, we survived the 80s, if we survived <laughs> Oprah, we can survive anything. The um, um, Wizards of the Coast started putting some heavy, like adults only demon themes into uh, their, into D&D. We're creating a new satanic panic by recording this show. Well, what's interesting is that currently there is a lot of controversy around Dungeons and Dragons uh, from within the gaming community. 
not because of the demonology, which now is like a huge part of the of the literature around the game. Devils and demons have sex in each other and murdering. Um, no, the current uh, the current controversy is that Dungeons and Dragons is not inclusive uh, mm, or uh, or diverse enough, and that there are a lot of racial stereotypes in orcs and portrayals of Asians and so forth. Interesting. And, uh, and so there's, um, there's a revised fifth edition of the, of Dungeons and Dragons coming out that, uh, that hopefully now, or, or that they're rewriting in response to criticism that they aren't inclusive. I mean, it makes sense. Again, this is just correlation, but the kind of audience that's going to want to play these things is more than likely, more likely than, their peers to be to be queer to be disabled to be neurodiverse i mean to be maybe to be out of place minorities and in any any regard right and ritual murderers you mentioned that patricia pulling died in the late 90s um she is uh she died of lung cancer in 1997 yeah and i this is speculation but um if she has the same story of most of the people who died of lung cancer in the 90s she really should have been spending the eighties fighting against cigarette smoking than fantasy role-playing games. Yeah. Like one of those had a bigger body count by millions. Although, uh, eliminating cigarette smoking as we've mostly done has not eliminated cancer. It led to vaping. That's the, that's the real problem. And that concludes bothered about dungeons and dragons entry one, four, five dot, 1T0515, certificate number 38501, in the Omnibus. Uh, Future Links, before social media was used to uh, overthrow the American government, uh, it was just like kind of a fun place to chill. In that era, we were at Omnibus Project, um, in my case, at Ken Jennings. You can find at John Roderick around somewhere, mostly Patreon. Sure, look for me there. Back in the day. Um you could email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com with tell us all your tell us all your D stories. We didn't really get into a lot of uh, a lot of lore. You know, we want to hear about your characters and your campaign and your experience points and all of that. Yeah, just write Ken Jennings at <laughs> gmail.com. Um, yeah, and tell me about the craziest the like saving throw you ever rolled, and then I put put those puts the word saving throw in the Subject uh, line, so I will know to so delete can, all these. So you can search. <laughs> so I can search and find them more quickly. Um, you can mail us physical items. What's in the mailbag today? I can tell this is from our this is our Portland friend David Chelsea because of the beautiful. I know the show is long, but I'm going to open this quickly. Don't open it quickly because sh- you sh- need to preserve the painting. First sh- of all, hold it up so I can see it. I should have done this Tuesday when the Phantom was short. Can I see the? Can I see the? Isn't it's that, upside down, you ding dong. Oh, oh, it's Silva. It's the guardian angels. Yeah, that's beautiful. Subject that is God. He's such a good painter. Um, David says his wife and I just flew to Boston. His wife and you just flew to Boston. Yeah, Why what, is he what telling? A, what a terrible way for him to find that out that story. Um, no, this was their first time flying in the pandemic. Oh. So he was crammed into a tiny seat for the first time, listened to Omnibus, and did some sketches in real time on, oh, on uh, airline oh, discomfort bags, bags of the uh, content of the um, 
of the shows he was listening to, which was The Erie War and The Town of Bent Next, both both John Roderick shows. Oh. One is from well, the good choice. One is from the Portland to Boston flight, one is on the Boston to Portland return. Um these are just fantastic. I'm gonna pass these over to you since they yeah. were your shorts, but we'll Well give me that envelope too. Um, these are beautiful. And we'll put links to these on the Patreon so that if you uh if you subscribe at whatever level that is, you can see these beautiful, beautiful oh, barf bags. Man, hot damn. These are pop art just like the shields of Papua New Guinea. And somehow somehow he manages to convey the kind of crazy leaping around of the episodes. Yeah. Somehow it, 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 would, it would be hard to reconstruct that this was an actual you would not believe this was an actual podcast <laughs> if you just saw it in comic strip form. Yeah, we have here on the town of Bent Next, there's Spike Lee, there's Franconia. There's uh, cobbling. There's the Nuremberg trials, Abercrombie <laughs> Spike, and Fitch. Spike Lee, the Nuremberg trials, and Abercrombie and Fitch do not come up on most, <laughs> um, you know, most Joe Rogan shows, for uh-huh. example, wow. most Radio Labs. Um, you can so yeah, please send us comic strip adaptations of every omnibus. We would love to um, have you sign over rights to that, and we would love to publish them I'm and make gonna, money off of them. I'm going to have him do the art for the next album I make. Uh, it's pretty great stuff. Yes. Thank you, David. Uh, check out David Chelsea's work online if you want to um, if you want to see what's for sale. You can support the show more materially at patreon.com slash omnibus project uh, or otherwise you won't be able to see David's cool art. In fact, at one of the highest levels of Patreon donation, you can even suggest a topic for the show. And today's show about Dungeons and Dragons was suggested by Jeff, who was also hoping we would do a show about penny farthing bicycles. But instead we chose... D&D. Sorry, Jeff, and Penny Farthing Bicycle fans. Thanks, Jeff. You can find like-minded listeners uh, by searching for Futurelings on Facebook and Reddit and Discord and the like. And uh, I think that's it. I think we're done with this very long show. Not yet. Are you going to do a very slow uh, outro? Futurelings. From our vantage I'm going to add the theremin in case you're listening to the super deluxe version that doesn't have it. In your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. Now let's just have a 20-minute pause to make this the longest entry ever. I'm, I'm really giving people their, uh, their money's worth for the ASMR here. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.